Hi, hello. This is Dr. Jacqueline Dry, and we are back with episode two of The Reach. I am signing on from Aix-en-Provence in France, and I am resisting the temptation to record outside as there seems to be no dearth of construction occurring uh, here in this small uh, town in Provence. This month's iteration of the ABA Book Club focused on what author Aubrey Gordon refers to as the last acceptable form of discrimination, and this is uh, anti-fat bias. So to further explore the anti-fat movement and, and fat activism, fat justice, we read What We Don't Talk About When We Talk About Fat, uh, the first book written by Aubrey Gordon, the author I just mentioned. However, this book, What We Don't Talk About When We Talk About Fat, is not the first thing that Aubrey Gordon has ever written. And if you haven't had a chance to pick up this book and give it a quick read, um, I suggest doing so if only for the about 10 to 12 page introduction. But do check out Gordon's blog. It is www.yourfatfriend.com. But in circling back to the text at hand, What We Don't Talk About When We Talk About Fat, Gordon really unpacks the history and, and actually the development and evolution, if, if I can use that word, of fat-based discrimination, primarily in the United States. So this text is unique in that it is certainly a part activist text. You know, we're getting sort of shades of Audre Lorde in some ways. But this book is also part memoir um, in which she more or less indicts, and I'm, I'm quoting here because um, I, I, I couldn't say this any better myself, cultural attitudes and social systems in the United States that have led to people being denied basic needs because they are fat, being denied basic needs because they are fat. Admittedly, it's been a few weeks since the meeting of book club and the release of this podcast, and it's because I needed to do a little bit more internal work before I put some thoughts out there into the radio waves. And that is because the connections between fat-based discrimination and ableism, xenophobia, discrimination against mentally ill populations or neurodivergent populations. Um, this is a much richer topic um, in the sort of self-presentation larger theme space than I had originally appreciated when I first suggested this book to the group. This text is so rich in terms of topics for discussion, um, ideas to unpack. However, there are two topics that I'm choosing to focus on here in this podcast. The first of which is a, is a focus on terminology within the fat justice movement. Words to say, words to avoid because they're incredibly hurtful or triggering, things of this nature. So very tactical in this regard. And second, we'll take a closer look at the concept of, and I quote, performing health because it is this concept that connects anti-fat bias to ableism, to discrimination based on mental illness and or neurodivergence. Let's get into it. One of the larger aims of the work that I'm doing as inclusion and belonging manager at ABA is to facilitate a larger conversation and not just in book club about the language that we use, particularly when we're referring to visible and invisible markers of diversity. One of the different deliverables that, that is requested quite frequently is, you know, a list of, of words to say and words to avoid. So here we are for this particular theme. I've made that list and we're going to focus on three terms today. 
the first term that we'll unpack is the name of the kind of discrimination itself. So fat bias or fatism, anti-fat discrimination, or if you're real fancy, fat misia, these are all terms, all synonyms for fat bias, the concept of fat bias, discriminating against a person based on the perception that they have too much body fat. Terms to avoid are fat phobia or sizeism or fat-based bigotry. Now the last one, we like to avoid the word bigotry because calling someone a bigot really isn't gonna get a person very far when it comes to establishing an open and productive dialogue. So that's a bit self-explanatory. And so while the behavior is bigoted, um, certainly using that word, which um, some folks can find inflammatory, is uh, certainly one way of starting a conversation, but not one that Aubrey Gordon recommends using. Sizeism is an interesting one. And the reason why Gordon discourages it is because it takes the focus off of fat-based discrimination. And that makes it possible to change the conversation um, towards another visibly discernible marker of body size, like thinness or height, for example. Ancillary to this is, is Gordon's uh, coining of a portmanteau called thinpathy, in which uh, thin people or straight-sized people will talk about how hard it is to be thin or how they can't gain weight um, in response to uh, a comment about a, a plus-size person's body size. So it's, it's this kind of change of conversation focus that we want to avoid, and then sizeism doesn't quite fit the bill in that regard. Fat phobia. Now, this is the word that I personally have heard the most, and this is almost pejorative from, from what I understand from Gordon's book to fat activists. And the reason why is this. A phobia is in fact classified as a mental illness. Um, however, prejudice and discrimination, um, those are not mental illnesses. And to, to say fat phobia is not only inaccurate, but um, I, I would say um, insulting uh, to those that do uh, in, in fact identify as having a mental illness. So when in doubt, just say fat bias. The next term is fat justice. Um, also, you can say fat pride or the fat acceptance movement. This is different from the body positivity or wellness movement, right? Body positivity and wellness movement are not synonyms here. The term fat justice places the obstacles and discrimination faced by fat people at the center of the conversation about this kind of discrimination. The wellness and body positivity movements are kind of a separate thing. And in fact, they actually marginalize fat people by equating thinness or a, a lower level of body fat with health. And, and often there isn't really a direct correlation between someone's weight and someone's health. It's not always that simple. The body positivity movement might offer a, a sort of dictum like all bodies are beautiful. This actually takes the focus off of the discrimination faced by fat people in the same way that blue lives matter or all lives matter um, do the same for race-based discrimination. It's a similar thing here. And finally, the third word here is fat. Um, you can also use the word plus size. These are interchangeable. These are synonymous. The words to avoid here would be obese or obesity or overweight. One of the trickiest parts of, of unpacking, as, as myself, a straight-sized person, of unpacking fat bias is the fact that certain medical terms such as obesity are actually inherently pejorative if you look at the etymology of the word.
So the word obese, for example, it's a great example, comes from the Latin word obesus, which translates to having eaten oneself fat. So within this word that we use, I mean, I've used it before thinking that I was using the proper medical scientific term. It is actually inherently blaming fat people for their size. In a similar way, overweight implies that there is an objectively correct weight for every body, some sort of... Um, ideal weight that, that all people can reach and should reach and should work towards when really it's not an indicator of health necessarily and every body is different. So while it may feel odd to use the word fat, it certainly does for me. I am used to hearing that as a 32 year old, mostly straight white woman as an inherently pejorative word. It is simply a neutral modifier that describes a person's body mass. So Either fat or plus size, completely up to you. Both are neutral, both are okay, both are better than any other alternative. So if we turn away from terminology for a moment and take a closer look at the idea of performing health, there really is a rich line of inquiry here for us to dig into. The concept of performing health um, is, is troubling and it comes from the belief that there is one correct way for a person to have sovereignty over their body. Body sovereignty, or as Gordon calls it, body justice is important to so many different forms of discrimination beyond anything related to body fat. I briefly, in, in the terminology part of this podcast, mentioned the body positivity movement, but unlike that movement, the body justice movement, the body sovereignty movement, understands that each system of systemic bias, of oppression, of discrimination for people with disabilities, for people who are fat, for people that have chronic illnesses, for people who are neurodivergent, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Each of these systems needs to be understood on its own terms and as a part of an interdependent web of oppressions and discrimination that impact every single one of us, whether or not we belong to those groups. Body justice, body sovereignty is a movement that keeps all of us in control of our own bodies and how we choose to present them to the world. The body positivity movement has rallying cries like, love your body, every body is beautiful. If you have a body, it's a bikini body, right? We've all heard these things. But the flaw, the critical flaw with this movement and in this argument in particular, is that it presumes that the greatest challenges that disabled individuals, that fat people, that people that are neurodivergent, et cetera, et cetera, have, is internal when really it's, it is in fact the external challenges presented by society or societal expectations and conventions that can erase a person's humanity. And I haven't even really talked about how the body positivity movement in, in, in a way that you know white feminism does disproportionately centers the experience of thin, white, Western, abled, straight, cis women at the center of that entire conversation which is not what this is about. And this is, this is intersectionality at its most nauseating, which we will get into on another episode. To truly embrace the idea of body sovereignty would be to actively work against these systems that erase the personhood of people who do not perform health in the correct, I'm using air quotes, fashion. And so what does that even look like? 
It looks like ending the legal widespread practice of weight discrimination. Did you know in 48 out of 50 US states, it is perfectly legal to deny someone housing or employment, a seat at a restaurant table or a room in a hotel just because they're fat. This looks like increasing access for everyone's bodies to public spaces from restaurants to airplanes to state buildings to new housing, making sure that all of these public spaces that we all use and pay for with our taxes are accessible for everybody. This looks like realizing the promise of healthcare for fat people, which is like having exam tables and MRI machines that do not have restrictive weight limits, establishing weight bias awareness as a part of medical training and insisting that the medical community acknowledge that fatness isn't a failure of personal responsibility, but the result of a complex set of factors that may include environments or genetics or existing physical or mental health diagnoses. And, and also the shame and marginalization that, that people feel based on whether or not they measure up to some ideal that doesn't actually exist. These are three very obvious tactical suggestions for what straight-sized people can do to make the world a more accessible and, and more equitable place, of course. But what isn't obvious is that by establishing a concept of body sovereignty, this also makes the world a safer place for women of color, for transgendered populations, for people with chronic illnesses. I do not need to connect the dots here between why anti-fat bias is important to the field of the performing arts. I mean, dancer Lauren Lovett, mezzo-soprano Tara Roth, soprano Deborah Voigt, right? Um, why is it that a person's body weight is even a part of the conversation when it comes to casting, when it comes to reviews, when it comes to evaluating a performance? Do fat people not fall in love? Can fat people not be heroes on stage? Um, do fat people not dance? I, I'm asking these questions in, in kind of a douchebaggy sort of way, but when did it become acceptable for the performing arts to discriminate against an artist based on his or her or their weight for the sake of the look of a production or because of the art form's tradition? When did that ever become acceptable? And if we can't let a fat person on a stage, why would we ever let someone who's transgender dance professionally? Why would we ever let a person with a disability set foot on an opera stage? Do you see where this goes? So yes, it's about fat, but it's about so much more than that. So the Gordon text was the first book in a, a larger self-presentation unit here as part of the ABA Internal Idea Book Club. The next date for ABA Book Club within the self-presentation theme is July 29th when we will be reading Ocean Vuong's On Earth We're Briefly Gorgeous, right? Right on the hills also of AAPI month as well. So I hope to see you at the next meeting, July 29th of the ABA Idea Book Club. Dr. Jacqueline Stucker here thanking you for